Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa in the last uh, couple of days, uh, different people have, have asked a, a few questions of me about uh, thinking, and the realm of, of thought, the thinking mind, and uh, so it occurred to me that might be a useful uh, theme for this evening. Since uh, probably all of us uh, who've uh, been putting effort into meditation practice, and uh, even if it's just very something very new to us, maybe so few of you are just uh, here for the first time, or just been uh, aiming to learn meditation in the last uh, few days or weeks, and others of us have been at this for decades. Yeah. But uh, whatever our experience might be, uh, one of the the most common experiences uh, uh, for uh, those of us who aim to to um, train the mind or use meditation is the the prevalence of of thinking or how much uh, effort and energy the the mind expends on on endless thinking, and um, and how. Uh, uh, Shocking it can be when you first uh, think, yes, I need to meditate. It'd be a really good idea, and then I learn, need to learn how to be peaceful and quiet. And, and then when you we sit down for the first time, first few times to to um, endeavor to train the mind, to to focus the mind, uh, and to be peaceful, it can be shocking. Startling, just how out, completely out of control the thinking mind is. Just like a, a wild animal romping around, a, uh, an unbroken horse charging around in a, a in a large field, just racing here, there, and everywhere, and vaguely contained within the the, the, the scope, the field of, of, sort of the body sitting still and the the effort to to watch and to to be paying attention, but. Uh, the the uh, trains of thought charging here and there everywhere uh, strings of associations and memories ideas fantasies uh, different patterns and images uh, brought up by things that we hear or, or me- memories that spontaneously arise or just random uh, uh, images associations just coming into being. So it can often feel like uh, the, the thinking mind is a is a real problem. It's a, like a, a brain disease, and that certainly I had that experience early on. Just thinking, if only I could just get it to shut up. <laughs> if only it would just go quiet, just for a little bit, then I'd be so happy. Just just for a few minutes, just just be quiet. And. Uh, and of course, it doesn't obey those kind of commands uh, or entreaties. So it can be uh, something that can be a real burden to us, just the mind chattering away, filled with with activity and endless questions, doubts. Why is that, why are things like this? And how do you do that? And why does it go this way? And what should I do about the other? And, uh, what's the right thing for me to do? What's the right kind of meditation practice? Just how much concentration do you need in order to practice vipassana, insight meditation? <laughs> These are questions that have been going on since the time of the Buddha, or probably before. So it's a, it can be uh, quite depressing, um, discouraging, just to the degree to which the mind can keep chattering and coming up with, with uh, doubts and, and issues of one kind or another. There is a, a number of different approaches uh, to this that you find in, in the teachings. Um, but one of the most helpful uh, of the Buddha's discourses on uh, 
this this realm of uh, a conceptual thought, and, and particularly of this random chattering of the mind, the endless uh, strings of association and, and mental uh, chit-chat, is a... Uh, uh, a discourse called the Madhupindika Sutta, the, the uh, sweet morsel or the honey ball that you find in the middle-length sayings. And, and in this, it, it, there's a, a very succinct pattern that is laid out uh, uh, and that is a very helpful way of, of mapping the process of, of mental activity and also uh, sketching out the way in which we can help it to to quieten, or at least seeing the causes of how the the mind gets gets carried away and caught up in its own creations, um, and creating this kind of internal monster and then being carried away by it. Uh, and it is it's interesting that uh, in the beginning of the discourse, it starts off with the, uh, an account of the Buddha sitting by himself in a, a forest and uh, happily meditating under a, a tree, I think under the bilva sapling tree. And uh, a, uh, a Brahmin teacher or priest uh, comes wandering through the, the forest, a fellow called Dandapani, which literally means stick in hand. And the, the image of this fellow is a, a kind of um, arrogant, self, uh, self-assured uh, young Brahmin, who's looking for a a, um, a way to prove himself or to to show off his his skill in the in the three Vedas, his his uh, dexterity as a a spiritual debater, and uh, the uh, the Buddha is sitting quietly, and this fellow comes wandering up to him and uh, gets the Buddha's attention and introduces himself, and and uh, the Buddha was. Um, yeah, happy to engage with him and to, to chat. And the fellow says, "So, uh, so uh, good, sir. You know, what kind of uh, what kind of meditation do you practice? What kind of teaching do you follow?" And the Buddha picked up from his whole manner and just the, the way that he looked and his his tone of voice. He said, "This guy is looking for a fight. He's looking for a, a debate, a contest, and to see who's going to be the who's going to be the smartest. And he's going to he wants to try and outwit me or to make me." Uh, look foolish by some kind of debate, and so that uh, seeing how, that this this fellow wasn't really interested in what the Buddha practiced or taught at all, but just wanted to find a way to to prove himself as being superior, the Buddha said, um, "I I uh, I espouse I follow a teaching, such a teaching that encourages not contending with anyone or anything in the whole world." So at that point, the <laughs> Dandapani, as it said, it's a, his brow furrowed into three deep lines and he clicked his tongue and <laughs> muttering, uh, uh, he uh, uh, took off with nothing uh, he, uh, and left the Buddha alone with no, uh, nothing to say, nothing to add and completely confounded. The Buddha was extremely quick. <laughs> In reading people's characters and intentions, and, uh, and also it was a helpful reflection to this fellow. He says, "You're looking for an argument. I'm not going to argue." <laughs> or like in the challenging someone to a fight, you know, like in the in the old days of uh, chivalry and the knights in armor, you'd, you want to pick a fight with someone, you'd slap them across the face with, a, with your your glove, your your gauntlet, and, and throw the gauntlet down on the ground. And uh, it's as if the, this fellow is challenging the Buddha to a duel, and uh, he sort of slaps the Buddha in the face and throws the glove down, and the Buddha says, "Nice glove. <laughs> Just if you want to, if you want to keep it, you better pick it up, because I'm not going to." So then the the Buddha uh, went back to the monastery and, and recounted this. Um, uh, incident to, to some of the community gathered there, and he said, uh, "It's uh, it's through this kind of um, it's it's through the uncontrolled mental activity, through conceptual proliferation. This is the cause of all quarrels, all disputes, all fault finding, all contention. This is the cause of all strife in the world." And then went off into his kuti and 
and uh, left the, the community sitting there. So they thought, what did it, how, how is it, how do you get from, um, conceptual proliferation from, from, uh, wandering thoughts to all of the conflicts in the world? How, how is that the cause of, of contention and strife? Uh, uh, and, uh, how is that the, the cause of all conflict in the world? And so then they went and sought out the Venerable Mahakachana, and, and Kachana was the, the one who had the, um, the, the title of being the one who was most skilled at expounding in detail statements that the Buddha had made in brief. So when the Buddha would make a little cryptic statement or some kind of utterance like that, then Mahakachana was the one that people went to and said, what did he mean by that? And so they, they go and seek out the Venerable Mahakachana, who was also an arahant as well, which is handy. <laughs> as well as being a very good expounder. And it's actually in the sutta, it's Mahakachana who spells out this this very helpful pattern. So what he points out is that uh, in the process of experience, first of all, there's a, a sense contact. So there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or a mental contact. There's a, a thought arises, or there's a memory, or a uh, a uh, uh, an emotion, a, a movement of the imagination. There's a contact, pasa. And then that contact gives rise immediately to a feeling, along with that contact of what we of seeing or hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, a thought. Then there's a feeling, a pleasant feeling, a neutral feeling, or a painful feeling. There's like either a, a, a feeling of being drawn towards or a feeling of pulling away. And with that, that contact and that feeling, then the mind um, initially categorizes that experience. This, what's called sanya uh, is brought in. Sanya in, in Pali is related to the English word sign. Uh, and it means uh, uh, to, uh, to designate. This is it's related to the same thing. It's defining the experience. So sanya is um, the basic recognition of, of uh, something that's seen. It's a, it's a sound. It's the, um, uh, in a way, the, the pattern recognizing quality of the mind. It's the, that which uh, discerns a particular pattern or form. And it's, so it, it's there even before conceptual thought. There's sanya as a perceiving the the uh, the perceptual process, the uh, the uh, process of uh, orientation and understanding, it begins with this basic pattern recognition, the factor of the mind, sanya. So recognizing that along with being pleasant, it's a sound, it's a pleasant sound, or it's a beautiful sight, or it's a an ugly taste, uh, it's a um, painful memory, or a, a, an attractive an attractive sound, whatever it might be. And then closely following after sanya, after that that naming process, there is vitaka, and vitaka means conceptual thought. So along with that initial um, discerning or, or pattern recognition, then the thinking mind comes in and says, um, that's a beautiful red color, or I hate green, or... It says uh, that was a that was a beautiful phrase, or um, that's my that's my favorite flavor, or I can't stand seaweed, or whatever it might be. So the vitaka is like an initial, um, say, employment of conceptual thought. It's the bringing in of language. So sanya, in a way, operates before language. Vitaka is then where the language and concept. Uh, uh, wades into the picture and we start to, to form an impression or opinion in the realm of, of thinking. So then once there's a thought of, oh, oh that, uh, that's familiar, or, 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 uh, or I like that, or dis- I dislike that, or that's beautiful, that's ugly, then that conceptual thought is uh, picked up and then starts to have uh, cause like a, a chain of, of um, of reactions, a chain of associations that that um, uh, that particular impression of oh that's a beautiful red or I don't really like green, uh, then the, this leads to what's called papancha or conceptual proliferation. 
this is Buddhist jargon that uh, you tend to uh, get used a lot around meditation circles, but it's a really important, helpful uh, concept to to, uh, to have to hand. Because papancha is like that proliferating tendency of thought is the way that one, uh, it's like a fire uh, catching uh, a field of dry grass or uh, spreading through a, a, um, a forest of, of, uh, of parched dry trees that uh, it catches whatever fuel it can pick up on so that when the papancha, uh, the momentum of papancha gets going then it will pick up on memories, it will pick up on uh, associated thoughts, it'll pick up on emotionally loaded, uh, habits of one kind or another. And off it races. So that the, the, um, the initial uh, sense impression of, uh, of a color or a sound or a, uh, a, a thought, then it triggers a, this naming process and then, and then off it goes. And so then just the sight of a, of somebody's jacket or a, the, the sound of a particular bird, uh, and then off off it goes. Oh, I remember those pigeons that might used to be there in my grandmother's garden. And oh, those are really great days. But oh, but Uncle Harry, he was a real pain in the neck. And yeah, well, you know when <laughs> he he treated the family so badly. And then when I get you know when I get to see him next time, I'm going to tell him this. But whenever you get whenever you try and corner him and nail him down, and then he always wriggles out of it. And off it goes, you know. All, you, all it started off with was the sound of a pigeon, and then next thing you know, that you're you're rehearsing this argument with Uncle Harry, and uh, you and isn't it amazing? I think all of us will have experienced this you know, so many times, where it just something triggers a, a particular thought. It can be a sound or a smell or a a a, a piece of a phrase of music overheard somewhere on the radio in the passing car and then <laughs> oh I remember when oh I haven't heard that tune for years I last heard that when I was on the beach <laughs> off it goes so in the last phase of this whole process as described there in the discourse of the honey ball is a uh, after papancha, this leads to what's called papancha sanya sankha, which means, which is translated as the, the multiplicity of conceptions and perceptions that, um, that uh, oppress uh, the, uh, the mind and, um, are the, um, say the, uh, are the burden on the heart. And in, in brief, what that means is that feeling of me, under pressure from the world, me in here and the world out there and this pressure or tension between us. So this whole process goes from an initial sense contact all the way to me being in a state of tension with, with the world, me wanting something I can't have or and uh, being uh, burdened by something that, that I don't like, me existing in a, ten, in a state of tension with with that, with the world. And that... Uh, and because of that, that tension, then this is the cause of conflict, that trying to get hold of what we haven't got, trying to, to fight against the things that we feel are, are oppressing us and burdening us, and uh, creating this sten- uh, state of alienation and conflict and, and friction. So this is a really, uh, I find, incredibly helpful teaching, particularly in this time um, uh, just the, in the the world as a, these are stressed circumstances, the climate change, the, the um, stressed economy, uh, difficulties within the the, um, the world of all kinds, within the community, within our families, just or just within our own mind, our own practice. These are extraordinarily ap- applicable teachings because um, when we find that the mind is caught up into this. Uh, habits of papancha, papancha, sanya, sankara, kind of caught into the conceptual proliferations uh, and uh, projections about ourself and the world. And, and there's a, a solidification. The mind makes this solid feeling of me in here and the world out there. Um, but we don't. Re- we think that we're seeing the real world. We think that we're seeing um, a, a valid perception. And we don't realize how much 
what we're meeting is actually our own projections. So that if I've already um, decided all the things that are wrong with Uncle Harry and that uh, he's always causing so much trouble, that when, when I actually enter the room with him, uh, or there's an occasion where you, you're, you're meeting that, that person face to face, then the more that the mind is embedded in its own conceptual proliferation, the less possible it is to actually meet the person. You don't, you don't meet Uncle Harry at all. You are, you're just meeting your expectations, your, your fears, your projections. And so that, and that's what you, you talk to. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of start delivering your speech on how you should be, you shouldn't do this, you should be like that. <laughs> and you're talking to your projection. You haven't even actually met the person at all. And often the other person's doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> and so you have these two monologues going on where we talk to our own projections and we never really meet. Just uh, in, the, in the process of, uh, of coming here to, to England, winding up my life in, in California over the last few months and then uh, the prospect of moving here to, uh, to Amravati. Yeah. I could see numerous times that the, the mind wanting to try and figure out how it was going to be or how, uh, I wanted to, 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 uh, have things in a certain way or I was afraid that uh, things were going to be in another way. And, and I could see my mind because the pattern of life at the Bayagiri monastery is somewhat different from here. It was a, it's much more of a quiet retreat place up in the coastal range of California. It's a large forest and much smaller community and, has a, a much more of a, a sort of fixed communal routine, and um, and so uh, yeah, every so often I'd feel these little bursts of oh, when I get to Amaravati, I really hope they don't do this, or I really wish they do that, or, or what I'd like to do is, <laughs> and I c- could see that as soon as uh, uh, that that wave of vitaka turning into vipancha will gather any strength, then suddenly. Uh, there I am. I'm imagining that I'm not in in Abhayagiri at all. I've I've, I've missed uh, that's vanished, and I'm in my imaginary Amaravati, <laughs> the imagined Amaravati, and uh, sort of having conversations with people who only exist in my uh, in my thoughts and my in my mind as a picture, and not uh, not really paying attention to oh, this is just a passing thought. This is just an impression. This is just a mental image. That's all. There's, there's nothing uh, real about this. This is an imagined future. There's nothing solid here. And that, um, and, uh, I used that, that tendency because of, uh, I'd been living in the, in the, uh, monastery there for about 15 years. And, uh, I left Amravati in 94, 95, um, to move over there. That was a, a long time had passed. So uh, I used that to, those moments of, of the mind wanting to, to try and create a future and go off and inhabit it uh, to encourage me to just say no, just leave it alone. Uh, to uh, to make it my task instead to to come with a completely uh, empty agenda, to come with with no no plan, no agenda, uh, and no no fixed idea about. Um, what I, I want to do here, what I don't want to do here, or how I think want things to be, how I don't want things to be, <laughs> and that I could see that uh, that was a, a big favor to myself, not having carting around a whole catalog of, of um, projections and expectations, and also as a big favor to people here, <laughs> that uh, again you're not arriving with a whole set of, uh, of projections, so that I'm not actually seeing or being with the real Amravati, but I'm being with my ideas and plans and and hopes and expectations and anxieties so there's a a way then with with the meditation when you, you we find ourselves caught up in some kind of uh, fantasy world so you've uh, you know, you've heard a a a, a, snip, a snatch of, of music off a, a passing radio and your mind is sort of back recollecting when you last heard that tune when you were in high school 30 years ago and and uh, there you are reliving some kind of um, school experience, then you, you suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not having that that kind of uh, uh, obsessive romance or that, that uh, painful conflict of being bullied by such and such a person 
They're not there. <laughs> the thirty years have passed by since that that moment, and and so what we can do is to uh, to say, well, uh, here at this moment is this feeling of uh, inhabiting this memory of of being at school and some kind of romance or some kind of conflict or some sort of memory of a of a particular teacher or friend. And then to, to trace it back, say, well, how did I get to that, that memory of the school? And I think, oh, here it was that song that in that year that was, everyone was playing that over and over again. That was that, the song that everyone was listening to that summer, that perfect day. That everyone was playing that that summer. So then that reminded me. And so then it was hearing it in that car. So there I was walking down the pavement and a car went by. And there was just a, a few seconds of that song. So all it was, was, was ear contact. There was sound. And then there was the, the naming, oh look, it's Lou Reed. <laughs> Perfect day. I remember. And then there was that I remember thought. And then there was the, uh, the recollection of that summer of 1970, whatever it was. And then the associations and oh yeah, they, there you are back in the schoolroom. In the class with this, this friend or that friend. And, ah, that's how I got there. So when you, you are caught, obviously it doesn't just work with, with, uh, old tunes, but, uh, every time that we find that the mind is caught up in those trains of papancha and caught up in that sense of, of, uh, nostalgia for the past or fear about the future or opinionating about someone that you live with, just to, to say, to recognize, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Here we're off in this imaginary world. Now, how do we get here? And you can follow it back the, the, through the chains of thought, the, through the, the, your memory of the of the succession of different ideas and and, and mental images. And then, the, the, what you find is that the more that you follow it back to its source, then the more peaceful and the less alienated you feel. The the, the process of separation into subject and object, me and the world. That, that progresses and solidifies, it reifies the further you get down the papancha track. And if you, the more you follow it back, and what they, in uh, one Korean teacher, whose name I can't remember, uh, uh, uses the phrase, tracing back the radiance, which is like they're using the, the brightness of the mind. You're tracing that, that, uh, that, that, that sort of, uh, in the track of the emergence of that energy, you're following where that, that energy had emerged back to its source. And that when you, when you follow it right back and there's just the, the recognition, oh, it was just a sound. It was just a smell. It was just a taste. That's all. And in that recognition of that simplicity, that innocence, it's just a, there's no sense of, of, of self and other, of subject and object even. It's just, oh, it's contact. That's all. Sense contact. Very simple, very easy. And, and also the, the sense of, of conflict or, or tension is absent. So this is a very helpful kind of, of method that I, I like to use myself and, and uh, encourage. Uh, because it's, uh, it, it takes uh, very little to trigger the uh, the habits of association, mental and conceptual proliferation, and uh, it takes a little bit of a, an effort to, to reschool ourselves. But when we do that, we find that that, that it's so many times the numbers of things that we can be caught up caught up in a lot of anxiety about tasks that we're supposed to be carrying out, responsibilities that we have, judgments about other people, loves and hates, and uh, frictions within ourselves and between ourselves and others. So many times, uh, rather than just trying to, to think our way to a solution of what should I do, uh, you know, how can I solve this, or, or how can I get what I want, or how can I get away from this thing that's so burdensome. If we just take a look and say, well, how did this friction happen? Where did this conflict come from? Where did this longing or this, this fear, this uh, irritation, this uh, obsession, where did it come from? And then to take the trouble, to train the mind to develop that uh, tracing back the capacity to trace back the energy, the radiance of it, to come back. And then to, when we get back to the recognition of the original source, just to let, you, let it really be known, to let the, the heart really taste 
the simplicity and purity of that. Oh, it's just, it's just a taste. It's just a color. It's just a sound. That's all. Ah. Now we can, we can relate to, um, thinking as uh, uh, as something that's intrinsically burdensome and, and certainly if the mind is chattering furiously away the whole time it can be a sense a feeling of oppression and and uh, uh heaviness just the irritation with with the, with the noise of it but it doesn't have to be that way uh, and oftentimes the the thought is oppressive simply because we feel that we're supposed to believe everything that our thoughts say, that if, if we're thinking it, it must be significant, it must be true. This is a patently absurd, <laughs> if you think about it, just because, it, and just that, to bear that in mind, to have that concept, to, to be ready to handle thought in that way, just by simply uh, framing it with the idea, just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. Because if you notice, you might think something this week and then a month ago you thought something different and a year ago you thought something else. So if, it, if, it's, if, it's, if, you, if it's true now, how can it be how can, uh, what you thought a month ago be true or a year ago? Yeah. And so to encourage a sense of um, skepticism or caution with relationship to our own thoughts... And one of the ways that I like to encourage to relate to the thinking mind, because oftentimes we, we feel that thought is in a bit of a different category to sight or sound or smell or taste. But as you, you notice that you can be, a, you can be seeing a visual field of, of objects like this, this temple, the pillars and the, the ceiling and the floor and the people, the shrine. And you can be completely at peace with what's seen even though it might be quite a complex set of images, with different patterns and colors and forms and shapes, textures, the perspective. But yet, even though it's a complex picture of uh, an array of colors and forms, yet we can be at peace with it. Similarly with sound, we can hear the sound of a voice or the sound of a, a bird, the sound of uh, a chanting, the sound of traffic, even, and be quite at peace with it. Uh, again, it can be quite complex sounds, but the heart can be at peace with it. And, and with any other kind of sense object. But it's exactly the same with thought. And it's, but we tend to put thought into a different category and we get so drawn into its contents, its stories, that we, we, we forget that, that thought, in terms of Buddhist psychology anyway, is just another sense object. It's just another perception. It's not anything special. And so if we take the principle that just because we think it doesn't mean it's true, or doesn't mean it's significant, we can relate to our own thoughts just like we can the shape of these pillars or the, the texture of the, the stone tiles or the, the, uh, the temperature of the room or the feeling of gravity pulling the body to the, to the earth. That these are, it's, it's no more special or significant than that. And so I often like to encourage people to, to relate to, to our own thinking, just as if it, if it was the neighbor's radio. You know, that when, when the neighbor's got the radio playing, you didn't even choose the station. You're not interested in the, in the program that they're listening to, or the, the adverts for, for the local car showroom, or the, you know, the offers from, um, Barclays Bank. You know, <laughs> you have no real interest in it whatsoever, but it's, it's there, it's a sound, and it's going on. And just as you can, you can hear the, the neighbor's radio going in the background and you can, you can make a problem out of it if you want to, but you don't, you realize you don't have to. It's just sound. It's no big thing. Similarly, we can relate to our own thinking, but that's the, an equal kind of, um, dispassion. It's not, you're not, you're not starting a fight against it. You're not getting, um, drawn into it. You're not particularly interested. And so we can develop a, a an easeful, a relaxed attitude towards the thinking realm. And oftentimes it's the very effort to try and get the thinking mind to shut up and go away and, and to, to not uh, obstruct our meditation. It's that very pushing away, that very aversion and negativity, trying to get the thinking mind to be quiet, that feeds the, the, uh, the, the whole process, the, the papancha mill that keeps the thoughts churning and keeps them, them revved up. And that simple relaxation of being 
just friendly towards the thoughts, not not starting a, a contention against them. That very uh, peaceful and relaxed attitude in relationship to, to thinking actually withdraws the fuel. It's not not putting extra fuel into the fire that's stoking the the patterns of thinking. Now, when we have developed a certain degree of of focus or the capacity to to um, calm the mind uh, a little bit, then uh, uh, then we find that actually, to our surprise, thought can be a really useful tool rather than being something that's intrinsically a problem or a kind of brain disease. That uh, the thought can be tremendously useful to us, and if you if you look at the Buddha's teachings in many, many of the suttas, also particularly uh, Ajahn Chah's teachings, um, over and over again you can see how there's a, a, a very direct encouragement to use reflective thought to uh, support the whole process of understanding of, of, uh, and of developing concentration and developing insight. Reflective thought uh, is a... a, a um, a skillful means that's woven into countless numbers of the Buddha's teachings. And uh, so that what we're doing with, with reflective thought, or uh, in Pali it's called Yoniso Manasikara, or um, investigation, Dhamma Vichaya, uh, the investigation of reality. These are the, the, the deliberate use of conceptual thought to clarify what's being experienced, to to define this is what's going on. And so uh, rather than thinking that, oh, uh, or believing that, oh, I'm, I'm practicing meditation, I shouldn't be thinking at all, all thought is, is an intrusion, all thought is, is, a, is a problem, it shouldn't be here, um, and the less thought that there is, then the, the happier we are, the more enlightened we are. We're, we're missing uh, the opportunity to use a very, very helpful tool. And also, just because the mind is free of thinking doesn't mean to say it's liberated. As Ajahn Chah would used to say, we would say sometimes that when a, a chicken is sitting on its nest, it's not doing a lot of thinking, and it can sit there for days. <laughs> it's not in a particularly liberated state. We'd say, you know, this rock, this is not doing a lot of thinking. <laughs> but this rock is not, is not enlightened. It's not a liberated being. So just freedom from thought, it means the mind is quiet, but the mind can be quiet, it can be free of thought without there it being a liberated state at all. So it's important not to equate just an absence of thinking with a, a state of liberation. The absence of thought can be a support, it can, and that quietness can be very, very helpful. But uh, it's not the defining characteristic. And when we use... Yoni uh, so manasikara, reflective thought. What we're doing is we're applying a tool of uh, a, a conceptual thought to, uh, in a way, frame the situation that we're experiencing, what's going on. And through that, that framing, through that examining of, of what's going on, what's being experienced, then that supports a, a letting go or a disentanglement. I was, um, Reminded um, when I was, I went off yesterday with Lumpur to visit the Buddha Padipa Temple in in Wimbledon um, to uh, pay our respects to the the abbot there as a sort of traditional um, way of going to to greet the local elders and to um, uh, to visit at the beginning of the rains retreat. And when we were talking in the in the car on the way, I was remembering. Um, a particular time when I lived here back in the in the 80s and early 90s, and I used to do a lot of the monastery administration. So I was the monastery secretary for quite a few years, and I used to share the office with with another monk, and a very dynamic monk called Ajahn Atapemo. And so the two of us shared, and he was more looking after being the sort of the representative for the English Sangha Trust. So the two of us shared the office together, and uh, it was an interesting mixture <laughs> of, of personalities and styles. And um, uh, a, a certain time, I was getting you know, really uh, uh, stressed 
by uh, sharing this space with Ajahnata Pema and uh, finding fault with with his particular way of doing things and, and uh, the way he operated. And uh, and I didn't realize the extent to which my mind was, was churning over this you know, and just going through this list of all the things that are wrong with Ajahnata Pemo. And uh, he shouldn't be like this and he shouldn't be like that. And, and, uh, and uh, how many times have I told him? And, <laughs> and uh, he, he, uh, he never listens and so on and so forth. And uh, you know how it is when you've got when you when, when your your mind is complaining or judging or criticizing you you develop a list of of of, um, uh, of evidence to back up all of your complaints and grumbles and you, you can gather this whole catalog of of, of, uh, of events and, and instances where the, the where you know, you've been you know, upset or that uh, a certain person's acted in a in an unhelpful way and. And then the, the more that you can actually quote sort of names and dates and places and incidents and you can quote what was said, and <laughs> then it, it backs up this feeling of, of uh, righteous indignation and, and uh, you can get really lost in your own rightness. And uh, so what, what, uh, what, what happened was that um, my mind was getting caught up in this, I think it was a month or about six weeks or so, I was getting onto this, this whole... Um, Internal diatribe about uh, all the things that are wrong with Ajahnata Pemo. And then suddenly, uh, it was one day, I think it was after the meal time, and I was just helping tidy up, and it was one of those, it was, uh, apropos nothing whatsoever, it was a completely unguarded moment. And uh, I, I think I was rolling up some mats after the meal time. This is when we all used to have the meal, the, the nuns and monks all used to have a meal together in the sala. And so tidying up, putting things away, and then, Suddenly, this phrase arose in my mind. I just there was a, a, some kind of grumble about what was you know, today's wrongness with Ajahnata Pema, <laughs> and then the, the phrase came through my, through my mind: association with the disliked is dukkha. You know, like we recite every morning. <laughs> the, oh, that's all it is. This is a feeling of, of dislike, of uh, association with something that's unpleasant. I don't like things to be this way, therefore there's dukkha. Oh, that's all. And uh, and then just picking up that phrase and then and looking at it, yeah, that's that's what's happening. It's association with the disliked, therefore dukkha. Oh, and uh, I realized what had been happening was that for for a month or six weeks, just sort of murmuring in the background, there'd been all these attitudes and judgments and feelings and. Always just off in the wings, never really fully acknowledged or, or looked at. It was uh, not something that I you know, paid a lot of attention to. It was just sort of gathering its own momentum, and and uh, the papancha mill was just gathering strength and churning out all this uh, uh, sort of negativity and and uh, and tension. And then just through that that simple reflection, oh. This is what's happening. There's there's something that is that is um, that's not liked. There's association with it. Therefore, there's this feeling of dukkha. That's all. So it didn't obviously didn't particularly change Ajahnata <laughs> uh, Pemo's behavior. But uh, it, what it did was it saw that it pointed out how my mind had been clinging to this feeling of of, of my rightness and that person's wrongness, and. Uh, and in that clinging, just creating more and more tension. And so that simple reflection of, oh look, this is association with the disliked, therefore dukkha. Ah! There was this huge relaxation within myself. It's like, suddenly the universe was not out of balance anymore. Does that make sense? Suddenly it's like, oh right, of course. Whenever you meet with things that you don't like, it, it's, it feels like this. The universe is in order. <laughs> it's like there's a stone in your shoe, it hurts. Duh. <laughs> what do you expect? It's, this is completely ordinary. There's nothing wrong here. And I felt this huge relaxation in myself. So this is a, a, a really, uh, just to me it was a, re- a really uh, excellent case in point of just applying a simple reflection. And you realize that a few well-chosen thoughts can save you weeks of grief. <laughs> it really can. It just, uh, if we observe, oh, this is, this is a, 
what's happening here. And it doesn't have to just be that single, that that particular reflection. It could be you know, anything whatsoever. Like if we're if we're praised or things go well, you know, if you're working in the kitchen and and um, uh, you're cooking something here at Amravati, and then somebody came comes up to you after the meal and says. I saw you making that that uh, stir fry. That was really great. You really know how to do that well. Oh. <laughs> and we can be praised for something, and we can feel that that glow. And then, if we're if we're um, not uh, conscious of that, or if we're we're heedless, we'll just feed on that. We're, we'll buy into that the happiness of of that uh, experience. But to apply uh, this kind of reflective thought in this way, then it's just to simply consider this is the, this is the sweetness of getting what you want. <laughs> Being praised is sweet. It feels like this. This is the sweetness of, of getting what you like, of being praised. Or if someone, uh, similarly says, did you make that stir fry? Uh, Oh well, yeah, okay, nothing, nothing, no comment. <laughs> you, go. you feel you've been criticized or blamed or or uh, someone doesn't like you. Uh, similarly, you can buy into that and say, what do they think? You know, they're supposed to be a renunciant, we're supposed to be you know, not attached to tastes and how can they get at me and I'm doing my best and besides those vegetables weren't that fresh. <laughs> uh, but instead, just to reflect, oh, this is the bitterness of being criticized. This is a this is a the, the, a painful feeling. That's all. This is the the association with a dislike. This dukkha. This is a this is a the the painfulness of being blamed or criticized. That's all. It's just a feeling. We can and then with that simple reflection, then it's much easier for us to to stay with that, to be able to be a, at home with that. Uh, that feeling, just to, to know it as it is. This is just a sweet taste. This is just a bitter taste. That's all. It's perfect. It's completely innocent uh, in and of itself. Another, another aspect of, of thinking, then, that we also, we can, we can relate to the mind being taken up with, with doubts as being a, a big problem. You know, also there in the, uh, the list of hindrances, the, the, um, Hindrances to concentration, to samadhi. You have doubt, vichikicha is right there. It's one of the five hindrances. You, know, you have sense, desire, aversion, dullness, uh, restlessness, and doubt. Vichikicha is one that's categorized there. It's a hindrance. So when the mind is caught into endless questioning, like, what should I do? Is this the right thing? You know, should I be here? Should I go somewhere else? How much should I eat? <laughs> I'm eating too much. I'm eating too little. You know, uh, the endless thinking and doubting, trying to find out why and and what what should I do and, and what's going on and and uh, and so on and so forth. It's true, certainly, the mind caught up in in doubt is is a uh, an anguished uh, can be an anguished and, and painful state. Also, incredibly busy, particularly if we're trying to think our way to the end of a doubt. And so we can we can relate to that any kind of questioning as being. Uh, similarly, uh, a burden or a problem or a, a hindrance to to practice, but uh, but there's also there's ways that that doubt can be extremely helpful to us. Uh, I, I'm very fond of quoting Voltaire, the uh, famous French uh, author, who said, "Well, um, we said it in French, but <laughs> in English it, it goes." Uh, Doubt may be an uncomfortable state of mind, but certainty is ridiculous. Doubt may be an uncomfortable state of mind, but certainty is ridiculous. I find that very encouraging. <laughs> because uh, we, uh, when we, we, we look at things in terms of Dhamma, then uh, doubt is uh, uh, the appropriate Response in, in many respects. It, it's interesting that Lumpur Cha, when he would describe the the, uh, the three characteristics of existence, those fundamental qualities of, of the whole mental and physical world, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, 
Dukkha um, will be he would translate as uh, a suffering or pain, and uh, anatta, not self, which I do or which I don't, not not who and what we are, not not self. Uh, but anicca, he would often translate or would render as uncertainty rather than impermanence. Because usually anicca is represented as, as impermanence, as if it's like a a, a, a quality, an objective quality of the, the material or physical thing. It's, a, it's changing, the thought is changing, this building is changing. Fifteen years ago it didn't exist, now it's come into being. These oak trees have turned into pillars and and form the framework, these um, limestone tiles, I think, came from Italy, probably. <laughs> they were they were Italy a while ago, and now they're England. They, they're in a state of change. So we think of Anicca as, as transiency or impermanence, as a, 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 in a way, a property of, of an object out there. But Ajahn Chah used to rather em- employ... Uh, the term uh, uncertain, uncertainty as a translation for anicca because when we experience the impermanent when there's the, the subjective experience of impermanence is uncertainty on the inside when the thing out there is seen as being in a state of change what is felt in, inside the, on the, the side of the subject is uncertainty, we don't know what it's going to turn into, we don't know what's going to happen to this building we don't know what's going to how long the stomach talk's going to go on? We don't know. Yeah, how many years we're going to live, or how many days? We don't know. And so that he tended to to use that quality of uncertainty as a the the direct and, and most useful meaning of anicca. And developing the anicca sanya, developing the perception of of impermanence uh, of anicca which is seen as being the, the most uh, central and uh, accessible doorway to, to wisdom, to the development of insight, he would say that this is a lot to do with encouraging the, the recognition of things being uncertain. The, the, in a way, encouraging doubt to, to let go of our certainties, let go of our, our plans, what's going to happen tomorrow, what uh, what's, uh, we can... Uh, be sure of about uh, our, our 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 thoughts or our, our feelings, our bodies, or the world around us. But uh, uh, instead, to develop the anicca sanya, the perception of anicca, to directly encourage doubt. And there's a wonderful, I mean, many talks of his refer to this, but the one in particular that comes to mind that's uh, a few different translations of, but um, it's most often been given the title. Uh, not sure the standard of the noble ones. And he points out how that when we see the uncertainty of things, you know, the, the mind which sees uncertainty is the Buddha mind. That is the mind which is aware, that truly knows things as they are, will see that all things are uncertain. That if there's a thing, it's in a state of change. And it's what we call it can only be an approximation. It can only be a uh, a rough version of it. And that when we cultivate that quality of uncertainty, of being not sure, uh, not just of material objects, but also not sure about our own judgments, our own perceptions, our own opinions, uh, that then we're able to bring the heart in accord with reality. And so that when we're certain about things, you know, this is uh, Saturday, this is Amravati, this is... Uh, then that... What we're doing is we're, we're taking a relative truth and we're uh, unconsciously making it an absolute, making it something firm and solid and real, and that and that uh, solidifying intrinsically brings the heart out of out of balance with with reality. And that when we genuinely see the uncertainty of things, when we rouse that doubt, then we have the chance of, of really being in accord with things. So Ajahn Chah would, would encourage simple practices like whatever arises in your mind, whatever you perceive, just remind yourself, not sure, it's not a sure thing. When you, when you say, that's good, remind yourself, it's not sure. When, you, when your mind says, that's bad, remind yourself, it's not sure. Uh, when uh, when you, you're 
when you interpret something as being, oh, this is really great. This is this is a wonderful success. I'm really happy about this. You know, this, it's great that it's gone. That, that things have happened like this. Remind yourself, it's not sure. And when you think this is a disaster, this is terrible, this is appalling, this is dreadful. Remind yourself, it's not a sure thing. And that uh, this development of of uh, anicca sanya using. In a way, you're using reflective thought. You're using the, the capacity to question and to to doubt. To you're you're what you're doing with this. You're expanding the picture. You're you're loosening the rigid projections that that, that we create around things. We're we're in a way shedding the the limitations that that we habitually create. We're letting. Our, our own habits of thinking and uh, our own conditioning to be a little more transparent, a little less defining of, of everything that's going on. And in meditation, you, you can you can use this, and like just as Ajahn Chah was describing, just to just to say not sure, or another uh, another way he would describe it would be to say, um, is that so? Jingle. Or actually, when I when I when I use that phrase, I remember there was a, a, a bhikkhu who used to live with us um, here at Amravati in Chithurst uh, years ago called um, Tanjanadasi, uh, and he had this way of saying, "Is that so?" It was a very characteristic phrase. A few of you maybe remember him. <laughs> Is that so? And he had this particular expression on his face. So uh, when I, I use this as a reflection, I often remember Tanyanadasi. <laughs> Is that so? And just to be able to ask whether it's a thought or a feeling or a memory or a judgment, that's great. Is that so? Like, I can't stand this. Is that so? Like, I've had enough of this place. Is that so? Like, I want to be here forever. Is that so? <laughs> so that you're continually... Uh, allowing the the context of, of our thoughts and judgments, our fears, our desires, our hopes, our opinions, you're allowing them to to be seen in their context. This is a formation that's coming into being. It's doing its thing. It fades away. It can't be an ultimate reality in and of itself. Don't get excited. Don't get upset. Don't uh, don't get caught in it. And then uh, the mysterious thing is that when we loosen our grip. On, on our perceptions and judgments, our, our loves and hates, likes and dislikes in that way, then we find ourselves far more able to act in accord with them. We are able to, our actions and speech, the way to respond appropriately and, and most helpfully to the situations we experience. It comes forth from that quality of, of unentangled participation, uh, unconfused, uh, Seeing and and uh, attunement, then what's appropriate, what's going to be most helpful, uh, rises from that attunement, guided by by wisdom, guided by by mindfulness, guided by a a, a lack of of self-centered bias. So these are a few reflections on the the realm of of thought and the use of thoughts. I would really. Uh, encourage uh, uh, everyone to employ these because uh, you know when when we are experiencing difficulties when when things are painful for us or we're really challenged like someone insults us or or that we do something and it really does go bad you know you, you have uh, cooked a, uh, you know, something that that even you can't eat <laughs> or that you've you've said something you're in a sangha meeting and you've said something that was really really off color or was really uh, offensive or hurtful and and uh, or someone uh, uh, is uh, someone close to you is experiencing a, a great deal of pain and and uh, you feel like you want to do something but you don't know what to do you can't you can't help that uh, there are many many instances in our lives whether we're a layperson we just here for a, 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 just for the evening or for a few days or we're in the monastic community and we've been around for months or years you know all of us experience times of, of great pressure and tension and, and uh, alienation we're really caught up in some excitement or enthusiasm or some some uh, shock or some fear 
some sense of, of oppression, painfulness. And, uh, and so the, the, the tendency that we have is to want to get away from that or to, to, uh, explain it or to, um, contend against it. But, uh, it's so, uh, these, these very, uh, simple and straightforward teachings about, about understanding our thoughts and their emotional, the emotional charge behind them. The, these, these kind of practices can, can help so much in bringing our attention to, to how that, uh, that those patterns of experience work. That you can really bring the attention right to that issue. Oh yes, this is absolutely what I didn't want to happen. <laughs> this is the feeling of things going completely wrong. <laughs> or this is, uh, uh, this is what I really like. This is great. This is, this is, uh, things going absolutely perfectly. This is the sweetness of, of getting things exactly how I would choose. It's like this. And just a simple framing, a simple naming of what's going on, uh, can be so helpful in bringing those emotional states, particularly difficult, painful emotional states. Usually we don't have trouble with attaching to happiness. <laughs> it's not so, such a big issue. But painful things, things that bring up fear in us, things that bring up alienation or or stress, they're, they're much harder and there's strong emotional feelings within us. But just to be able to, to bring, to use these teachings to, to recognize, oh yeah, if we bring these reflections, these, this direct way of apprehending and meeting those experiences, then you're not suppressing them, you're not trying to get rid of them, but just say, oh yeah, this is this is what this is the, the the tension of fear. This is a feeling of threat. It's like this. This is the feeling of grief of having lost something that was precious. This is the, it's like this. Then you find that there's a, a, a simplicity and a naturalness to that experience, even though it might be very burdensome or heavy and painful, the tears running down the face. But there's uh, within that there's no sense of wrongness. The universe is not. Being perceived as being, perceived as being out of order. Say, okay, there was something that was precious to me and now it's gone. And so there's a feeling of grief. That's all. And we can use these, these, these very simple direct teachings to help us know those, just those flavors of the human world, to know them, understand them, to not be thrown off balance by that, to see how this is part of the whole human drama, the, the flavor of the of the world. It is like this. And then we can f- uh, feel the emotional tone of it, feeling those, uh, the, the physical sensations that go along with that, to, to feel it, to know it, to let it go. And so then that uh, even intense emotional states or, or difficult experiences, the loss of a loved one and or some kind of wrong, something that we've done that's terribly, been terribly hurtful to others, or, or things that others have done that have been hurtful to us. We find that we can, we can uh, know those and understand them and digest them. See, these are also, uh, patterns of nature that arise and cease, that can be received, can be known, and then in that, direct knowing and seeing them as aspects of nature, then our response to them, what needs to be done and what needs to be said, then comes out of that, that as I was saying, that quality of attunement. It comes out of wisdom. It comes out of of uh, mindfulness, uh, a, a heartful and mindful uh, attunement to the present moment rather than reactive patterns of... of um, of sadness or grief or uh, aversion or or uh, feelings of, of uh, incompleteness. There's a a way that we respond to the ups and downs, the, the joys and sorrows of life that uh, that acts in accord with dhamma. It's a, it's it's an expression of dhamma itself, and this is a. a, a uh, an ability that we have. We have the resources. We have the teachings. You know, just like every day we, we chant 
association with the dislike is, is dukkha, separation from the like is dukkha, not getting what you want is dukkha. <laughs> These are not secret teachings. These are not hidden from us. Yeah. Uh, just a simple uh, observation that everything is impermanent. Yeah. Sabe sankara anicca. All sankaras are impermanent. It's right there. <laughs> so picking these up, taking these simple, direct teachings and applying them. Oh yeah, everything is uncertain. Everything is uncertain. Everything is impermanent. Yeah. All things come to an end. Just that much. And then it, just applying that, bringing that to hone in on the the, the momentary experience, and then seeing, letting ourselves fully know the result of that. Oh yeah, this is impermanent. Ah. This is uncertain. Ah. And then letting that, the lightness of heart, those experiences as a result of that, to be fully known. And so speaking of impermanence, so is this talk. So I offer this for reflection this evening.